Several years ago, I found myself singing with a group of church leaders in a dilapidated church building in Zambia. The song leader was a gifted young man. I imagine he could probably get a corpse to sing if he really tried. Uh, He led in a number of traditional hymns. They were beautiful, but then he also taught us this memorable chorus, and you can all be thankful I can't really remember it to be able to sing it to you today, but I've not forgotten the line that repeated through it. It said, Jesus is just around the corner. And every time that we come to that phrase, he would snap his neck and look and bend over, and you really thought Jesus just might be coming around the corner, just the way that he led that song. And that small place, remote place, few people. A simple expression of the great faith that we have as born-again Christians. Jesus Christ is coming again. He is going to return to this earth. He came once in humility. He will return to earth in triumphant glory. And we realize not everyone who claims to be a Christian believes in the bodily return of Jesus Christ. But everyone who believes the Bible to be God's infallible, inerrant Word embraces the blessed hope that Jesus will return to earth. All of them. As we've read and been studying over the past weeks, 1 Thessalonians 4 says it this way, "...the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." God's Word is given. It is clear that Christ will come again in this passage and in so many others. But as unanimously as we affirm this truth, Bible-believing Christians do not agree on when Christ will return. And I don't mean here the date of His return. This is for no one but God to know. I mean when Jesus will return in relationship to another key eschatological event that we know as the millennium. Just to be sure that we've defined terms properly, we have eschatology, an eschatological event. The word just speaks of, the, of last things. We use it in the area of theology, eschatology, of the investigation of end time events when God wraps up human history. What do we mean by millennium? This word is in our vernacular, our daily usage. We think of it as a thousand years. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 20 which is the place where we find this idea expressed, and we've heard it read here already this morning, but Revelation chapter 20, just looking at verse 4, we see at the end that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And we find reference again there at the end of verse 6, they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So there's this repeated emphasis to this thousand years, and we refer to it then as the millennium. In light of our consideration of the eschatological themes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13-5.11, through in these recent weeks, I thought it would be fitting for us to consider the relationship of Christ's return to the millennium. Now this discussion excites some of us. 
Some, you're not going to have to work very hard. You love thinking through these things and how they relate together and what God has revealed. There's others, this is really, really hard work. And I, my, my intention here is just to bring us as a church to think about these themes. They are difficult. It's hard to put it all together. But some might even be tempted to say, who really cares? Jesus will come when Jesus is going to come. The discussion does not really help me. This understanding of the millennium and the return of Christ, these future events, this doesn't help me with my finances. It doesn't help me become a better parent or better mate or better sibling. It doesn't help me point other people to Jesus Christ very effectively. I can't really talk about these things. It doesn't help me deal with sin, and I'm struggling. I've come here and I need a word of encouragement today. I don't need to consider how do these things put together and how we understand them. How did some people think differently than other people who are both Bible-believing Christians? I could answer that on a number of lines, and I trust that through the sermon there will be some evidences that that's not good thinking. What we know about end times very much affects our daily life. But setting that aside, let me just bring two thoughts before you. The study of eschatology is possible because of two glorious realities. Have you ever thought of it this way? Eschatology, end time events, is possible because God is sovereign Lord and author of history. He knows how human history will end because He's determined how it will end. And He steers the course of human events to their destined conclusion. It's the only way that eschatology is possible is that God is the author of history. He knows how it will end. He won't get it wrong. The second reality is this, is God reveals to us how He will bring human history to an end. He lets us in on the conclusion of things. Now, he doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know, but He tells us enough that we will realize He is the author of it all and that it's going to end a particular way. If we keep these two realities in mind, God is the author of the story and He has chosen to reveal to us how this story will be brought to close, it will fill us with an appreciation of the privilege that we possess to have this knowledge and this knowledge does in fact affect us. It deepens us in our walk with God in ways we may not understand. Now there's obviously people who can go off this rabbit trail and get lost. And all they ever do is spend time trying to put things together and understand how everything works. Setting that aside, for us to have a knowledge of what God is doing and how He will bring things to a close, that very much orients our life. We need to remember that as we consider these ideas. God knows how to sanctify His people. And one of the means of our sanctification is to know how the human story will come to an end. So we should listen very carefully. We may not be able to put it all together. It's mind-boggling how Christians reading the same passages can think so differently. But having said that, we need to listen to what God has told us. We must come to terms then, as I've mentioned a couple of times here, with the fact that Bible-believing, godly, faithful, good people do not agree on the relationship of Christ's return to the millennium. Now, out of respect for our brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom we disagree, maybe some even here with different views among us, but in an attempt to stake our understanding of the Bible on this topic, we need to consider three distinct millennial positions respecting the return of Christ. 
There's three distinct ideas. Before we get there, I'd like to first trace out a little bit of the history of how people have understood these things. It's important to know first that in the first three centuries of the Christian church, it was almost universally held that Jesus would physically return to earth in order to set up His kingdom and reign for a period of 1,000 years, whether taken literally or figuratively. So the early church believed in the premillennial return of Christ. We really don't have any str- strong evidence of faithful, orthodox believers who were teaching something else in the first 300 years. The faithful exegete Irenaeus argued at length that Jesus would return and reign over the earth for 1,000 years. He noted that Jesus' victory would be incomplete. Have you ever thought of this? This is way back in the 300s that he said this. I hadn't thought about it until I read this from Irenaeus. But he said the victory of Jesus would be incomplete if He reigned only in the world to come. Jesus' victory must be celebrated in time on earth, in the millennium, not only in the eternal state. And so he argued at great length that there would be this time of Christ's coming and reigning on earth. Now toward the end of the 4th century, an African Donatist by the name of Tychonius rejected Irenaeus' understanding of an earthly kingdom. Tychonius said the millennial reign of Christ was taking place in a figurative sense in the church. Not going to be a thousand year period, not going to be an actual reign on earth, but it's happening right now in the church uh, in a figurative sense. Tychonius predicted, in fact, that Jesus would return in 380 A.D. He died in 390 A.D. Now what does that tell you? He says that Jesus will come back, the millennium will end in 380, so clearly he's not thinking that it's an actual 1,000 year period of reign. So a figurative sense of the period of time, doesn't really mean 1,000 years, and a figurative sense of the reign of Christ, not on earth in actuality, but just happening spiritually in the church. Now under the influence of Platonic philosophy, the prominent theologian Origen came along and was very troubled by the orthodox emphasis on an earthly kingdom that was too crass for the Platonic way of thinking. This world is fallen, it's evil, the physical world itself is evil. And so everything we want to do is to be delivered from this world. The idea of Christ coming here to reign for a thousand years, that was, it was offensive. And so Origen also held and developed that idea of a symbolic concept of the, of the millennium. He taught, in fact, that there would not be, in the truest sense of the word, a physical resurrection. Because again, why would you want to resurrect something that's very evil? And so the body's not going to resurrect. So we would take certain passages that we would understand to teach the resurrection, to teach a millennial reign of Christ, and he made all of these symbolic. Now along came the greatest theologian outside of Christ and his apostles to stand on the planet, and that was Augustine. In the 4th century, Augustine started his Christian life believing in a premillennial return of Christ. He believed Jesus would come, establish His kingdom for a thousand years, and then the eternal state. 
But Augustine ran into some problems with some people, and that was some premillennialists who really had some strange ideas in speculation. In fact, they were downright goofy at times, and it was a bit embarrassing to have to uh, relate to these people and to say, I too believe in a premillennial return of Christ. And so what happened, there was a switch in Augustine's mind. And he popularized really Tychonius' view, and he brought Origen's teaching up to speed with the Bible, proposing in line with these men that the millennium was something that we should spiritualize. We should understand it's not an actual kingdom. But it's happening right now as Christ reigns from heaven's throne through the church. And he had the whole issue of the Roman church in some sense combining with the, uh, the Roman government, combining with the Christian church in some sense, and so that also very much influenced how he looked at the millennium. That it would appear that the Christian church was conquering the world as uh, Rome embraced Christianity in some form. Augustine taught, now listen to this carefully because it will come in again at various places, but he taught that Satan is bound between the two advents of Christ. So when Christ came, died, rose again, he bound Satan, and Satan remains bound throughout the church age. Now when Augustine picked up his pen, people listened. And they really listened because he was a profoundly influential writer and thinker. And so what Augustine said about the millennium held sway for 13 centuries. The Roman church, the Eastern Orthodox church, just essentially took what he had developed and embraced that as the idea. The millennium is not really a physical return of Christ and a reign of Christ, but rather a spiritual reign of Christ taking place within the church. The medieval Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox churches held to this eschatology. We come then to the time of the Reformers, where the bondage of the Roman church and its, and its lock upon theology was cast off by the Reformers. They embraced Augustine's proper view of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we rejoice with the fact that they did that. But the Reformers also retained certain aspects of things that Augustine got wrong that had been solidified in the Roman church. For instance, infant baptism. At least we would say that, and realizing again that there are some godly brothers and sisters in Christ who practice infant baptism. But I think this is one thing that the Roman church had wrong. It had it wrong from Augustine and the Reformers. It was just one area they didn't clean up. They just embraced that infant baptism. Something else they embraced without cleaning it up or changing it in any sense was Augustine's theology concerning the millennium as a spiritual idea taking place figuratively in the church. So Jesus would not return to set up an earthly kingdom. He would return only to end history and set up the eternal state. This was the reformed position. The millennium of Revelation 20 then was figurative. Many of our reformed brothers and sisters in Christ would still embrace this very idea. It's really not been changed since Augustine, though it's gone through some development. So coming back then to those three ideas, let's lay out the three basic positions. The first is post-millennialism, which says that Jesus will come after the millennium is complete and will set up the eternal state. There will be a general judgment of the good 
and of the evil. The kingdom of God then is not a domain over which Jesus physically rules in any sense. The kingdom of God is fully operative on earth through Christ's rule in the hearts of His people. That's the kingdom of God. So Jesus has bound Satan through this church age that He will remain bound so that through the Holy Spirit the Gospel can have effect and can actually convert people to Christ. Some post-millennials believe the millennium is fully operative now. Others say that we'll imperceptibly enter into that period of time, but then for a thousand years, not to be taken literally, just, just um, symbolically, for a long period of time, there will be this golden day that will come. So here's the thinking of the post-millennialists, is that uh, this world will get better and better as the Gospel permeates it like leaven permeates a lump of dough. And we can see where this comes from in some of the parables of Christ. That, in fact, that very idea that the kingdom of God is like leaven in a, in a lump or like a tree that grows. And so they're saying that, as we just take that straightforwardly, that the kingdom of God is here, it's entirely present, it will just keep growing and growing and growing, and this golden day will come, thousand year period, figuratively speaking, then Christ will come. There is a branch within postmillennialism which has largely gone by the wayside. There was a little problem with the 20th century and two world wars that had something to do with uh, the, the uh, response to postmillennialism. It just doesn't seem like our world's getting better and better uh, by any means. And in some respects, we could say that it is, uh, such as in the area of slavery or something like that. But when you look at it, it just doesn't appear that the gospel of Christ is conquering the world. In fact, there are fewer Christians percentage-wise than there were a couple of centuries ago. It just doesn't work. But there are some who are, have then entered in, known as theonomists, a strain of post-millennialism who says, well, it will be the spread of the Gospel, but it will also be the pressing of the Mosaic Law into culture. And as we see that law established, those who don't respond to the Gospel will be responding to God's purposes in the law. And in that way, the golden age will come. The millennium will come. We will bring it in. We will see it happen. And then ultimately, Christ will return. Second view, a little more quickly, but amillennialism. Prior to the 19th century, there was no distinction. Post-millennials, amillennials. And the evidence is that both camps claim the same people. They both say they follow John Calvin or they follow Augustine. Amillennialism does not share the optimism of postmillennialism. It's not going to get better and better. The Gospel is not necessarily going to conquer in an external way in the way that we see it. But what amillennialism does say is that this reign of Christ is happening now spiritually within the church. So against premillennialists, there will be no earthly, literal kingdom over which Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Jesus will return, judge the nations, consummate the eternal state, when not so concerned. What's going to happen leading up to that? Not so concerned. The fact that the, that the uh, world is not turning in mass to Christ, not a concern. The reign is entirely the kingdom of God from heaven's throne and it is operative in the church. Then there's premillennialism. 
Christ comes after the millennium, this golden age. We don't really think about millennium in those terms. It's just spiritualized and amillennialism. And then there's premillennialism. This view teaches that Jesus will return to set up His earthly kingdom and will reign as sovereign ruler over the earth for 1,000 years. The Old Testament promises about this golden age will be literally fulfilled. Thinking, for instance, of Isaiah chapter 11. Remember that great chapter, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and it will go well for the lamb. A nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra and will not be hurt. The curse on the earth will be lifted. We sung of that today, haven't we? No more let thorns infest the ground. I mean, is that like a Christmas plea for how spring's going to be and the weeds aren't going to come up? No, it's about the second coming of Christ, this literal, physical, millennial kingdom where there won't be weeds because the earth will be changed, the curse will be lifted, it will be a place of abundant fertility. No famine, no hurricanes, no tornadoes, no floods, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, drought, pestilence, it's all gone. The sowers will overtake the reapers as the world produces abundantly like it was meant to. Righteousness will reign on earth as the nations submit to the strong rule of Christ. The promises God made to Israel that have never been fulfilled will be fulfilled during that millennial period. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Isaiah 11.9 For most premillennialists, the kingdom of God is in a sense here. It is breaking into this world with spiritual influence, but there is also a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come. Christians do not spread the kingdom in the sense of bringing it into being, the millennial reign of Christ, but rather there is a sense in which that kingdom is to come and is to be established by Christ. All right, deep breath. That's, that's a lot to consider, I realize. But let's begin to tie this to Scripture. And I think that we as a church need to have deep respect for Bible-believing people who are amillennial. There aren't hardly any post-millennialists left anymore, but I have a friend that's a theonomist, and he's a godly, faithful man. He loves the Lord. I think he's dead wrong on the influence of the law in this culture, and he knows what I think, but he's a good man. There are people who think this way, and we need to respect them, not to belittle them. However, I want to argue along premillennial lines. I'll say that up front here. And to say that this, there's a reason why we hold to such a view. Now, I don't say this as I'm right and other people can't read the Bible. This is one of those areas I don't like to speak on because there, are, there is such difference among good people. But I don't think that means we should run away from the topic and pretend like it's not there. It's there. Let's consider it. And where we should start, I think, is not in the New Testament, but rather in the Old Testament. And I invite you then to consider the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15. We won't linger long here, but let's consider briefly what we know about this covenant between, uh, that, that God enacts with Abram. Genesis 15, we know that there's been a promise that Abram will have a people and a land. And Abram's faith begins to waver. He doesn't see a child, and so he asks God about this, thinking that there will be some adopted child, his servant, Eliezer, that will be the one who is uh, to fulfill the promise, through whom the promise will be fulfilled. 
God takes Abram aside. You remember this scene? He says, let's talk. Let's go outside here and talk. Verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abram as righteousness. Now at this place, something really strange happens. Some animals are assembled, and they're cut in half. And then one half's put over here on this side, and one half's put over here on this side, forming a kind of aisle. What on earth is going on there? Well, this is how a, a very significant covenant would be cut or established in that day. You would put these animals on either side, and you were saying, in a sense, if I break the covenant, may, it, may I be like one of those animals. So the animals are cut, and the pieces are set on either side, and we notice in verse 12 what then happens, that the sun was go- going down as a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for, you, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You get the idea that God's right in the story, don't you? He tells them what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to the Israelites for 400 years now. This is what will happen. God knows. Then, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Notice this phrase. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Pretty simple promise, right? This land from that river to this river. The river to the north and to the east, Euphrates. The river to the south the river of Egypt, however we interpret that, but it could be Nile, it could be another brook a little further north, but at any rate, quite a ways to the south. And he identifies that land. He's not speaking figuratively here because it's the land on which the Kenites are living, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and so on. The land where they live, I'm going to give you that land. From this river to that river. The truth of the matter is, Israel's never occupied that land. Ever. How do you deal with that? Well, from an amillennial position, this really doesn't matter, and so there's some way of saying that's not going to happen. It might be this way. Israel sacrificed the promise due to her disobedience. God is saying, I'll give you this land, but because Israel disobeyed, she's not going to get that land. It's never going to happen. What's the problem with that? How many people, how many parties walk between the pieces? There's two lights that evidence the presence of God who establishes this covenant with Abram. Where's Abram? He's fast asleep. 
He doesn't walk between the parts. This isn't about Him. It's about what God has determined. It is a unilateral concept, and God has made this promise. Well, from an amillennial position, and by the way, I just keep post-millennialism out of it from this point because it's in eclipse, but basically the same concepts, just twisted a little differently. The promise, they would say, is fulfilled in the church when the planet becomes the possession of Christ in the eternal state. That's what God means here. He means more than what He's promising. That it will actually be the whole earth that will be possessed by Christ the King. That's what He's saying here to Abram. I don't know about you, but it makes me extremely nervous to hear God say that He will give the offspring of Abram a specific plot of land with specific borders and then to say that God's speaking figuratively. But that's not really ultimately what He meant. What seems to be far more the case here is that Israel has not possessed this land to this point in their history. This is what will take place in the millennium. This is the land that they will possess when Christ does rule physically over that possession. There really is, in my understanding, from an amillennial perspective, no real answer to this. It is simply dismissed as this promise was sacrificed by Israel or this promise will be fulfilled in a way that Abram could have never expected. Passage number 2, and we must pass over much of what the Old Testament says, and we've mentioned some of this, of this golden day that is promised to the people of Israel. But Acts chapter 1, we come to the time where Christ's death and resurrection have taken place, so redemption has been secured. Acts chapter 1, if you'll make your way there. Jesus, notice how He responds to a question that comes from His disciples. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6 Christ is risen. He is having His his last discussion with His disciples. And when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 6. Jesus says to them, notice how He responds, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice Jesus does not say that the disciples' question is illegitimate. Don't you understand the kingdom is in your hearts? That's what he says. Don't you know that the kingdom is fully here in the lives of the redeemed? He doesn't even say, just wait a while and you'll figure this all out with further revelation. That you'll figure out that the kingdom's fully here and that it's spreading and, and, and you're not thinking in right terms. He doesn't say that at all. The disciples ask Jesus what? They ask Him, about the restoration of the Davidic kingdom to national Israel. This expectation reflects their eschatology. This is what they believe will happen. And Jesus does nothing to correct the idea. He does not say the church has replaced Israel. He does not say the promise to Israel has been lost due to her sin. Jesus simply refuses to answer when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. What's His answer? You have no idea what you're talking about. 
you'll figure it out, the truth later about the kingdom. No, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His authority. So nothing Jesus says would lead the disciples to question that the Davidic kingdom would be restored to Israel. And that kingdom, including redeemed Gentiles who become by faith the children of Abraham, is yet to be established. All all we need to grab here is the idea that there is some sense in which the kingdom is to come. That there's something yet unfulfilled about this promise. This brings us to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19, we've read it earlier. Let's look again at verse 11. And I'd like you to ask this question as we look at Revelation 19.11. Now you have to bring in some knowledge of the book of Revelation. This might put some at a disadvantage, but what do you see happening here when we read Revelation 19? What is going on? Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I heard one day a post-millennialist develop this passage. What we need to see is that the rider on the horse is Christ. Is everybody there? His name is the Word of God. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christians agree on that. This is Christ. But what this post-millennialist did was he described that what's going on here is a description of the conquest of the Gospel in this age. He had to really work hard at that, I'm I'm telling you. It was difficult for me to gather. This is a description of the progress of the Gospel. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 15. Verse 17. An angel cries with a loud voice, calling the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Is this breadcrumbs? Verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Does that sound like the conquest of the Gospel? Now you could imagine, okay, the Gospel is setting aside kings and captains and mighty men who are godless and reject the Gospel. What on earth did the horses do wrong? They're eating the flesh of horses, and it's a picture of war. Verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's hard for me to see that as the conquest of the Gospel. The Gospel is a Gospel of peace, of mercy, of forgiveness, of the kindness of Christ 
to those who are in sin and need redemption and salvation. There's a day of judgment coming when Christ will come to judge, but this is not that era. This is the era of Christ's patience with those who reject the Gospel. So I think what seems fairly obvious here is that this is a reference to that coming of Christ when He comes in judgment, not to the conquest of the Gospel that's been going on for 2,000 years. Reading this naturally, you have one riding on a horse who comes to judge and destroy and to exercise righteousness, ruling with a rod of iron and a flashing sword. That leads us then with the return of Christ to chapter 20. And when I, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Satan is bound. Again, with respect I say this, but amillennialists say that this is a description of the church age. Think of it. If now the millennium is happening in a spiritual sense, then this is a description of now. Satan has been bound. And they will insist that Satan has been bound from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of His second coming. This is what's being described here. Satan has been bound and that is how the Gospel can make progress. Do we live in a world where Satan is bound? Satan has clearly been defeated by Christ. But we read in 1 John 5 and verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That doesn't sound like he's bound. Ephesians 2.2, Satan called the prince of the pow- is called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, and hear it, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Satan is referred to as the God of this world who blinds sinners to the Gospel. Satan has been defeated by Christ. But are we willing to say that Satan has been bound, thrown into the pit, such that he is no longer able to deceive the nations? I think we see a Satan that's very alive in deceiving people across the face of this globe. The more natural reading of this text is not to say that Satan is bound now, but that Satan will be bound at this 1,000 year period which is yet to come that Jesus will return to earth, crush His enemies, and then bind Satan for a thousand years. This is a future, not a present reality. And I think it's a real weakness in the amillennial position. I believe. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. There's, There's some people here, They're sitting on thrones ready to judge. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. He's been talking about them in this book. So those people. 
those people we've just been talking about that are martyrs for Christ, those people along with others, they, the end of verse 4, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And when you read that, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, in verse 5, that's called the first resurrection, what do you think of? Here again we encounter a major problem with the amillennial position. The amillennialist believes that this resurrection is spiritual. It's not literal. It's not a bodily resurrection. It's your conversion to Christ. So they came to life, that means they were saved, and they reigned with Christ as they are right now doing in the church for a thousand years of figurative length of time. That's the amillennial position on this verse. The reason is they can't have a resurrection before the millennium. Because this is the millennium. So they can only have a resurrection after the millennium. So that leads us to verse 5, which says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Parenthetical statement, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, refers back to verse 4. These people came to life and reigned with Christ. So there's no doubt that these people were converted, right? Verse 4, they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life. Is that telling us they were saved? That they spiritually had come to salvation in Christ? There's absolutely no reason for us to hear that. They're martyrs for Christ. Obviously they're saved. They're reigning with Christ. Obviously they're saved. Amillennialists say that this is a spiritual resurrection because if it's literal, then there's a resurrection at the start of the millennium. And that messes up the whole scheme. The other problem they face is that nowhere in the New Testament is resurrection ever used figuratively. Never. Unless here. It's to be the only occasion where resurrection is used figuratively of conversion. It's always a reference to bodily resurrection, to the spirit and the body being reunited and being given life. I talked to a young man about this once and I made that claim and, and he said to me, well, there is a place where there's a figurative use of resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, at first blush you think, well, yeah, maybe that's a figurative use of resurrection. <laughs> Just remember where he said that. Jesus said on the resurrection and the life at a funeral where He raised a man from the dead. Every use of resurrection in the New Testament is a reference to spirit and body coming to life. To say here we have the only place where resurrection is a spiritual idea is concerning. We need to just at least be aware of that. The other problem here, as I've mentioned, is that verse 4 then in the amillennialist view is a spiritual resurrection, but all agree verse 5 is a physical one. So they came to life, they were saved, this is the argument, they reigned with Christ for a thousand years in the life of the church. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, and that means everybody. So the people in verse 5 and here's the problem with that view. The people in verse 5 are differentiated from the people in verse 4. Are they not? 
you have some who come to life and reign with Christ, and then it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life. The dead in Christ are raised in verse 4. The rest in verse 5 are a different group who are not raised until after the millennium. So I think it is arbitrary, if not reckless, to translate verse 4 as a spiritual resurrection and to take verse 5 as a physical resurrection. They're both physical resurrections. There's some who would actually, seeing the problem with this in the amillennial camp, say they're both spiritual resurrections, which completely doesn't work at all. They're both physical. That means there's a resurrection before the millennium. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in that first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So again, I would argue this is not a matter here of spiritualized reign with the risen Christ, though He is risen and reigning, but is talking here about that first resurrection where some come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Resurrection, then millennium. Well, when does the resurrection come? We know when it comes, at the return of Christ. We read of it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we notice also here in verse 6, the future tense. Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. It doesn't say they're reigning with Him now. It says this will happen in the future. So, with all due respect to the amillennial position, very quickly, just let it flow through, just to grab it, even if you disagree with me, I still love you, we'll continue to love each other and serve together on this matter. But here's, I think, Six reasons why the premillennial view is a superior view, in my thinking. The first is history. First three centuries of the church, no one devised any other way than to believe that Jesus would return and set up His kingdom, and those who changed that were motivated not by exegesis of texts of Scripture, they were motivated by other concerns. Now that means nothing. That's just a historical argument, but it does indicate a little bit of where we are. Second reason for premillennialism, all unfulfilled promises in the Old Covenant are fulfilled literally as they would have been understood by the people who received those promises. Now obviously some of those promises of God are fulfilled in a manner the original recipients of those promises could not have fully comprehended. But when God promised David, I will give you a son who will rule on your throne forever, did he only mean Jesus reigning in heaven? Or did he really mean what he said to David? How David took it? When God promised David that son, what did he mean? When God promised Abram the land from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt, Abram knew those boundaries. He knew the people living there. He was very aware of what this promise meant. He trusted God to literally give Israel that land. Did God actually mean the whole earth would be given to the reigning Christ someday? It will be. But is that what he meant in Genesis 15? Or did he mean the land from the Euphrates to the river Egypt? Listen to these words of Isaiah the prophet. How do we take these words? What do we do with them? 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, we may t- that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What do you make of that? A promise canceled because of Israel's unfaithfulness? A promise fulfilled figuratively in the church? And if it's the eternal state, who are these people showing up with war instruments? Why would they come and have to beat things into plowshares, swords into plowshares? Why would they have to do that if they're in the eternal state? Judgment's already passed. That's the beauty of the premillennial position is all these promises in the Old Testament are perfectly fulfilled exactly as people understood them and then some in the millennial kingdom. Third reason, the two resurrections of Revelation 20 are both physical. That's fairly clear it seems to see unless you have an agenda to change that. They are physical resurrections which demands that saints are resurrected before the millennium and that cancels an amillennial position. It just can't happen. You have to take the first one as a spiritual resurrection. And that doesn't work. It's not how the word's used in the New Testament. Number four, premillennialism sees the distinction between the resurrected resurrected saints of Revelation 24 and the rest in verse 5. It doesn't lump those two together. It sees there a distinction is being made. Number five, it acknowledges that while Satan has been bound, and defeated, while Satan has been defeated, he has not been bound in the sense of Revelation 20. And sixthly, it allows for a literal, straightforward reading of Scripture, not us having to arbitrarily decide when is it figurative, but just to take God at His word. And I don't mean by that that amillennialists aren't taking God at His word. Some may be. It might be true of some premillennialists. But there's a straightforward way of reading it. So. Wow, this is a stretch, isn't it? Some of you are eating this up. They're the ones that can see the whites of your eyes, and there's others that this is really hard stuff. I mean, this just—it just you say this is beyond me. How do you weigh all these things and know all these positions and figure this all out? It's just crazy. There's a sanctifying work that God does just as we come to understand that Christ will come. And do you see something we've caught? You may not even recognize it right now, but let me talk to you about it briefly. The whole point is not for us to merely go to heaven, is it? Is that what God's revealing? Just make sure you get to heaven and that's the end of it? It's not for us to go to heaven. The point is that heaven will come down to earth. We set our affections in heaven, Philippians 3, because that is where Jesus is right now. And if we die, we're going to meet Him there in spirit in the intermediate state. But Jesus will return to earth. And and we will reign with Him. This is His destiny. This is our destiny. 
as we know Christ. And that should profoundly affect the way that we see all of life. The end has been determined by the Sovereign Lord of history. That end has been revealed to us for our sanctification. And it is now our calling to live as vice-regents of Christ, to spread the glory of His name until He comes and fulfills all of His promises. I may speak to some and say, I still don't get it and I really don't care. I really can't get excited about the return of Christ. It just seems like a myth. It just seems weird. I, I don't get it. It doesn't move me. Let me say to you, Jesus may be just around the corner. And you should be getting ready. People denied that He'd come the first time. They'd given up hope. But there were those who were waiting. While we're waiting, He'll come. Someday in His time. And it's a call then to those who say, I don't get the return of Christ. It's because you don't see the beauty of who He is. But as He opens your eyes to see the wonder of His saving grace, how He's provided for the forgiveness of your sins, and how He'll give you life abundant and free, you won't be able to wait to see Him. He may be just around the corner. We don't know. But we can rest in the reality that God knows. We can rest in the confidence that God is writing the story of history. He will Stop at nothing to vindicate the glory of His name. He will stop at nothing to vindicate His martyrs. He will stop at nothing, as He says in 2 Thessalonians, to vindicate those who have stood for Him in faithfulness. And He will stop at nothing to redeem His people. We have this confidence. We leave it in His hands. And by His grace, we live for His glory, holding loosely to this world and clinging to the promises of God, seeking the Savior whom we've never seen, but strangely, we love. Let's bow for prayer. Father, on this theme, we're, we're stretched, significantly stretched is always not something we rejoice in to know that there are good and faithful believers who see things differently. But I pray that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would graciously relate to them, and that each one would be convinced in his or her own mind of what you're teaching us right now. I pray that we would grow, that we'd mature, that we'd be faithful to Your Word, and above all, that whatever we hold, we would hold it lightly in one sense, knowing that we don't see it all. But I pray that we would cling to Your promises and know that our lives hinge on the return of Jesus Christ. This vital reality will come. And if we're right on what we've concluded here today, we long for that day when Jesus will show Himself to be ruler and Lord on this planet until He turns over the kingdom to the Father for all eternity. These are words of hope, but they're words also of anticipating judgment. And I pray that each one of us would be ready to face the judgment of Jesus Christ, not 
on the basis of our good works, but on the authority of what Christ has done. We rest in His saving grace and thank You for His salvation. In His name we pray. Amen.